This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. The Apostle Paul was a preacher to the Gentiles, a missionary, a church planter, and ultimately a martyr for the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. He was also a theologian of wisdom. He used the Greek noun for wisdom, Sophia, 28 times in his epistles. If we look at how he used this word, it is striking how often the idea of wisdom appears in some of his most famous passages. For example, in the doxology of Romans 11.33, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. That's from the ESV. Most of the time, Paul's direct discussion of wisdom occurs in 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Ephesians, and Colossians, and so this is where we'll focus our attention in this episode. This is Season 6 of Office Hours, and our theme is To Know Wisdom. Joining us in studio is Professor Joel Kim. He teaches New Testament at Westminster Seminary, California. He's co-editor of and contributor to Always Reformed, essays in honor of W. Robert Godfrey. With all the other faculty books, this title is available through... The Bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu slash bookstore. And he joins us to help us understand the Apostle Paul's teaching on wisdom. This is part two of our interview with Professor Kim on wisdom according to the Apostle Paul. Hi, Joel, and welcome back to Office Hours. Thanks for having me back. The powers who put to death Jesus, who judged him, were persuasive, were powerful in terms of this world, were influential, but God nullified them in Jesus Christ, who didn't look like anything. When they were beating Jesus, as the psalmist says, they have plowed my back, right, as those cat of nine tails dug into his flesh. Mm -hmm. He didn't look like much, but when they went to the tomb, it was empty. And who ran away? The soldiers, the powerful ones, and who had to make up lies? The influential ones. And Jesus was not only raised, he was seen by 500 and the disciples, and then ascended and was seen, and is now seated, ruling over the nations. Mm -hmm. Psalm 2 says he rules them with a rod of iron, and we confess that too in the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed. So at the end of the thing, who turns out to have been foolish, and who turns out to have been wise? There's a great reversal, isn't there? I'm often reminded of the uh, narrative of Elisha, where the enemies come surrounding the little town he lived in, and his servant comes out, and his servant sees the enemy surrounding them and says, oh, master, we're going to die soon. We're going to die soon. Gehazi. Right. And so here's Dothan where they're at, and Elisha comes out, and he simply declares, he who is for us is greater than he who is against us. And he prays to the Lord that he open his servant's eyes, and the servant sees the chariots of the army of angels surrounding the enemy. And oftentimes, Scripture speaks of spiritual blindness that many of us go through each and every single day. Obviously, unbelief is blindness, thus the visual effect of Paul's eyes being blinded and scales falling off of his eyes in order for him to see. But oftentimes in our daily living and practice, we are blinded, where uh, what we see immediately in a tangible way around us seems so much more glamorous and glorious without recognizing the power and truth and incredible beauty that is found in wisdom that only God can provide. For since in the wisdom of God, verse 21, the world did not know God through wisdom, 
that is through its wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. So here he's reversed things. There is wisdom, real wisdom in Christ, which looks like foolishness, and there is false wisdom, which really is foolishness. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And he turns the table, again, adopting their language and redefining for them how they ought to understand what wisdom is. Jews demand a sign, Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, and foolishness to Gentiles. It seems as if there are a couple of things happening here. What is the distinction between the Jews and the Gentiles relative to stumbling blocks and foolishness? Well, oftentimes I think the one thing that we're looking for, when you read through the Gospels, you recognize one of the things that, Scott, you asked earlier that I might not have proficiently answered, because I don't think I actually went there, was the issue of this age. And one of the things that we recognize is that Paul has a perspective of history that is slightly bigger and different than what most people had. He had this understanding of this age and the world to come that are clearly distinguished, demarcated by the coming of Jesus Christ. Prior to Jesus Christ, we anticipated coming of the Lord in full power and consummating glory. And people expected that consummating glory to come in power with signs and wonders, the way God appeared to the Israelites in the past, especially in saving them from the bondage in Egypt. Signs and wonders played major roles declaring the presence of God and his power to be known. And as people who lost their kingdom, now seeking a new home for themselves, oftentimes what they were looking for was God coming in glory, that as they're anticipating the world to come, the day of the Lord, oftentimes the Old Testament refers to, they consider that to be the final consummating activity of God that comes in power and wonder. Unfortunately, when Jesus did come, that's not how the world was demarcated. Clearly by his coming, scripture says, when the fullness of time came, Jesus' coming, living and dying, resurrecting, indicated a new age has begun. The world to come has already infiltrated, intruded into our world, but it hasn't been fully consummated. Thus, we often use cumbersome words like already in the not yet, inaugurated eschatology to speak of our present state, that the world to come has already come, but not fully come. In that light, Jews seek this consummating power and glory to appear in the coming of the Messiah. But Jesus was not that. Jesus came in weakness, born in a manger. Jesus came not with sword, but words of authority. And it confused so many people, including his disciples, who thought that him being a Davidic king will come and take over the world in power with sword. And what we see, however, is that he comes in meekness and gentleness. So confusing was this phenomena that even John the Baptist sent his disciples back to the disciples and Jesus and asked, are you the one that we were hoping for, or are we to wait for another one? That what people were anticipating, that is, Davidic king coming in glory, in consummating act, with power and wonder, did not occur the way they anticipated. Now, from our vantage point, it did happen. He gave sight to the blind. He gave legs to those who couldn't walk. All these things that were anticipated as end-time prophecies did occur in the sight of God. Christ was giving life to all those who are there in him and so on. But Jews sought these signs of the presence of God and the kingdom come. They never did see it. In fact, what they saw was the opposite. A babe born in a manger, carpenter's son, with these weak followers, 
followers composed of tax collectors and uh, fishermen. How in the world can that be viewed by the world as this great, exciting coming of the Lord? Not exactly your ideal political action committee. No, no. It's like you and I, Scott, showing up somewhere and saying we're going to take over the world. <laughs> Nobody would believe us. I mean, I, I, no, I don't mean to compare ourselves to Jesus or his disciples, but simply seems so little, small, unbelievable, and unacceptable to the eyes of the world. Yet, here he is, the Messiah. Same thing as the uh, the Gentiles with foolishness. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. So here, power and wisdom are correlated, which is interesting because he does that elsewhere. For example, in Ephesians 1, where he relates wisdom to God's electing grace. So what is he saying here? Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Ultimately, for Paul here in this passage anyway, as he's trying to communicate a set of priorities to the Corinthians and to us, what's he saying? It seems to me that Paul wants to make clear that we understand, as John pointed out in his prologue as well and throughout the Gospel of John, that Jesus is the fullness of God upon the earth. And then not only that, all the attributes, qualities, and actions of God are found in Christ. Thus, uh, Christ is the wisdom of God, the wisdom from God, In fact, it makes an emphatic statement that Christ is wisdom in terms of making that equation explicit. And what we see throughout the Old Testament, and it seems like the way Paul understands it, is that both creation and redemption are done by God, by his wisdom, through his power. And what we see in Christ, he is the very one through whom the world was created and redeemed. There's a direct equation of what God does with what Christ does as far as we can tell. Therefore, Paul teaches us over and over again that all things were created by Jesus, as Colossians seems to argue, and as 1 Corinthians says, and all things are made for Christ as well. So all things attributable to God are attributable to Jesus Christ, his Son, and he is the embodiment of God's wisdom and power both in creation, also in the redemption as well. In salvation, however, don't we see an acute, a particular manifestation of God's power, inasmuch as those who were ordinarily under condemnation are delivered from condemnation and into acceptance with God through a quite unexpected, miraculous, and to the Jews and Greeks, foolish and weak way. It's interesting that in Ephesians, Paul correlates wisdom and power relative to creation. Here, however, in 1 Corinthians one twenty-four, he correlates those two things relative to salvation. What do you think we should make of that? What is he saying to the Corinthians about the nature of power and of salvation? I think it seems to be in line with what we've been discussing thus far, which is what you see is not what you actually get. Uh, That is, in fact, verse 25 goes on to explain the power of God that was displayed in the person of Jesus Christ, but in terms of our view of it, it seemingly was viewed to be weakness as well as meekness in terms of his death. In the living death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the cross becomes a prime example in the mind of 
of Paul of the intersection of wisdom of God and the power of God. And what's intriguing about the cross itself is that what normally people would consider to be foolishness or lack of wisdom actually displays wisdom. At a moment when there seems to be a display of weakness as well as impotence is where the power of God is fully displayed and demonstrated. And the paradoxical nature of the cross is what Paul seems to focus upon here. That where there seems to be foolishness is where God's wisdom is present. Where there seems to be weakness from our perspective or human perspective is where the full display of God's power lies. It's critical to get the gospel right because it is the good news of the work of Jesus Christ that is saving. W. Robert Godfrey for Westminster Seminary, California. Uh, We need the whole Bible. We need the whole message of the Bible. We need the help of the law. We need the crushing work of the law. We must never undervalue or underestimate the importance of the law. But it is what Christ did that is saving. And what by trusting in what Christ did, uh, we are saved. It is by receiving the gospel in faith that we're justified and all the other benefits and fruits of Christ's work flow out of that. Westminster Seminary, California. WSCAL.edu. 888-480-8474. Westminster Seminary, California. For Christ, His gospel, and His church. How, as we bring this to a close, does this set the stage for the way he wants to address maybe the chief problem in the Corinthian congregation, and that is of division into groups, right? I am of so-and-so, and I am of, you know, I'm of this one, I'm of that one. I have this gift. You don't have that gift. I have this power. You don't have that power. How does getting these things right, that is, how does defining wisdom correctly and seeing it chiefly manifested in the weakness of Christ, as you say, in his obedience, his death, and ultimately in his resurrection, how does that help sort out the priorities and the issues and the crises faced by the Corinthian congregation? Maybe I can answer that question by referring to an example that Paul himself goes to, which is how people regarded Paul himself and others like him. And the way he resolves that tension, because what people were judging him by, and people were judging others by, were by the external look of their abilities and their eloquence. And the way Paul addresses that question is in chapter 4 of 1 Corinthians, where he says, This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Now, there are a number of things here that Paul is referring to, but especially about the leadership within the church. He simply wants to point out in the use of imageries like stewards and servants, that they're not in charge, that the authority that they possess is delegated, that they are delegated individuals upholding somebody else's authority. And then two, the way they handle themselves is one of dependence. The world says our maturity is marked by growing independence, when we can tie our own shoes, when we can drive on our own, when we can buy our home. Those are the markers that the world looks for, uh, for maturity. But scripture, the more you are 
in Christ, the more you become dependent, which is important in terms of the way that uh, people are judged. It's not that they are judged by their prowess or their successes or their acceptance by others, but simply by their faithfulness, their trustworthiness is what he speaks of here. And so, throughout the 1 Corinthian writings, he kind of overturns what is perceived wisdom versus real wisdom or heavenly wisdom. In this case, people might perceive that one's eloquence or one's ability to speak or one's ability to bring a crowd together is the way you judge one's success and one's apostolic authority. But he says, no, 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 you've got that misplaced. He says, you don't judge me and I don't judge me. Those are false places or false tribunals of judgment. Only God can judge my heart. If that's the case, the only thing I should be doing is to be faithful, trustworthy, dependent, and recognize our proper place within that relationship. And what he does then is to change the perspective of the believers to help them see what is proper, both in terms of priority as well as in terms of our actions in whatever takes place. And obviously, Corinthians deals with all kinds of practical issues. It's interesting that in verse 10, he says, we are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise Mm -hmm. in Christ. Mm -hmm. We wonder maybe if he's not being a little ironic, if we aren't putting quotation marks around fools and wise there. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. I know it's hard for us to hear that. I mean, especially in our present generation where words like privilege and entitlement are said and repeated without even blinking one's eye. It's hard to hear these words. And he's basically pointing out that for many of us, and he's got tongue firmly placed in his cheek, this is how the world views us. And this is maybe how the Corinthians... Were... Corinthians potentially viewed him. Exactly. But he's pointing out that many of the Corinthian believers and many of those who are in Corinth, uh, already this, to use a phrase that might sound cumbersome, uh, this kind of over-realized eschatology. They're enjoying what they believe is their proper due prematurely when we're not actually where we are before God. And he simply points out they are fairly satisfied with the world's view of them when the world's view of them is misguided and oftentimes wrong. And in fact, the fact that the world loves you may be ironically an indication that there is something wrong here. Instead of you feeling like the fact that we are accepted by everyone is an indication of my prowess or success. It turns things quite a bit around from, I think, what people were anticipating. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. I urge you then, he says in verse 16, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in the church. Some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of those arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love in a spirit of gentleness? There are similarities here because Corinthian church, Colossian church represent the spirit of that age. 
seeking wisdom, success, recognition, and prowess. And maybe our age, too. Our age, too. I mean, you're the historian, so you're probably able to traverse that much better than I can. But yeah, I think there is direct application to our time and our age. And one thing interesting about Colossians, like the Corinthians, is this search for this acceptance, this desire to be received and accepted by everything around us. And Colossian church is a church that Paul never visited. Corinthian church is a church that he's visited. And what's interesting is that because because Paul knows the situation in Corinth intimately, he does so with great authority and gusto and uh, personal strong statement just to remind them of who they are. Colossians is a little bit different. He approaches them somewhat gently because it's a fledgling young church that he's never visited, surrounded by all kinds of attacks upon it. Because I think I understand how the Colossians might have felt. They said Jesus is the only way, but according to the Greco-Roman religions of the time, oftentimes they're both and religion, not either or religion. That is, they take another person's religion and they accept it into their own so that they make sure that everyone's covered. And in that context where Colossians are always taught and saying, you can believe in Jesus if you want, but you need to add all these things in order for you to be accepted by us in order for you to be acceptable as an individual. Paul comes in gentleness, which he doesn't do so here with the Corinthians as much, and reminds them, no, 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 Christ is the all and be all. He is the reason we live. He is the purpose for whom we live. And he is, and that's where that beautiful hymn comes in about Christ, right? Simply reminding us that it's by him we are all sustained. And this notion of Jesus as being all, our wisdom and knowledge, the beginning and the end of who we are is a point that Paul seems to emphasize throughout his writings, seen not only in Colossians, but also in Corinthians here as well. They're misguided, and the only way they can bring them back is to remind them of the fact that the wisdom that they so seek is found in Christ and Christ Jesus alone, and there's nowhere else they can turn. It's interesting that he begins to sort of shift the way he's speaking here at the end of the chapter, leading into the discussion of sexual immorality and the necessity of church discipline, and he begins to assert his apostolic office. We started off talking about the relative influence of the sophists and the debaters of this age and those who are persuasive. But Paul says, when I come to you, I'm not going to come and talk, I'm going to come in power. And I was thinking of, for example, the objective manifestations of his apostolic office and power. For example, he raised Eutychus from the dead, right? So these debaters, these talkers, they were persuasive. They were able to move people. They were able to create a following, a group, a sect within the church. But Paul's going to come with a divine authority that comes from heaven, that comes from the risen Christ, and he's going to change the situation fundamentally when he comes to them. He has truth on his side, the power of God on his side, the Spirit is at work in all that he does. So yeah, I do think that no matter what people might say of Paul, whether his abilities are great, whether he's an acceptable kind of a guy, but here, the undercurrent of 1 Corinthians also involves his assertion of his apostolic authority does come through in this passage. In some ways, in a practical way, I am reminded of Joshua and the covenant renewal that took place and at the end of the book of Joshua, chapter 24 in particular, where he reminds them as he's about, he himself was old and 
moving on. And as he does so, he says, look, you can follow the gods on the other side. And the implication is there, the very gods we've already defeated in coming into the promised land. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. And here, Paul, in speaking to the Corinthians, and to be honest, the Corinthian situation is kind of interesting because it never gets resolved. I mean, later on in First Clement, which we believe to be written right around the turn of the first century, Clement has to write to the Corinthian church to about say, the very same very issue. same things. And so, so <laughs> for four or five decades, the problem continued, and he has to come back and say, do you remember what Paul said? But you guys are continuing to persist in this way. So there's a particular Corinthian flavor here where the struggle continues, but Paul does assert his divine authority. And then Paul goes on to at least teach them, show them, cajoles them even at times to remind them of the wisdom of God that ought to be applied to situations here where the Corinthians, thinking that they're wise, are not able to do or have been resistant to do thus far. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash officehours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.